On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel, Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Let me begin by saying, as I look back over this last year, I am so very grateful to God for who He is and what He has done and, and what He continues to do, not only in my life and in your lives and not only in in our church, but in the world as he works to bring about his plan and purpose. What an encouragement it is to know, as, as people have said, that things aren't falling apart, they're merely falling into place. I mean, God is at work. And God is still saving a people of his own, a bride for his own dear son who will worship, exalt, and glorify him now and throughout the ages. And despite what's going on in the world around us, our ever-present help in the time of trouble, our strength for today, our bright hope for tomorrow is our loving Savior and eternal King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important for us to remember because quite frankly, the last nearly three years have been like living in the twilight zone, right? Right? And it's hard to comprehend, in one respect, the rapidity of our nation's descent into the depths of the depravity in which we find ourselves. And as a nation, we are probably worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in nearly every way. We are like the nation of of Israel during the time of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes, and that, of course, brings nothing but confusion and self-destruction in the end. Our government fully supports, seeks to advance, and even celebrates the things which God says are abominable. I mean, who would would have ever thought that we would see uh, these things in our lifetime? But of course, we as Christians know the biblical explanation for all of this, right? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read it, but I would encourage you to read it when you go home. Because this is, that is the only explanation for what's happening in our nation. As a nation, we have rejected God, his word, his law, his moral standard, his expressed will. We have sown to the wind and we are reaping the whirlwind. And so in a very real sense, Christians should not be at all surprised by what we're seeing because we're informed by God's word. We should understand these things. Unbelievers, on the other hand, they don't understand these things. I mean, there are moral, unbelieving people in the world who are exasperated by what's going on. I saw a short video clip of a woman expressing the things that she said made no sense in 2022, and she's right. But this is what she said. Black lives matter, except in the womb. Women's rights are human rights, but no one can define what a woman actually is. We're told to trust the science, but we deny basic biology. 
Love is love unless you love God or your country, and then you're right-wing extremists. We live in a tolerant, welcoming society that does not judge anyone based on race, gender, or faith, except when you're a white Christian male, then you're done. And then she asks, how did we get here? How? Unbelievers don't understand. And the best best explanation uh, for the state of things that they can come up with is socio-political in nature. And their solution is to elect a more conservative administration, secure the borders, cut spending, deal with inflation, strengthen the military, restart the Keystone Pipeline, open up more oil and gas leases to get energy costs under control, etc., etc., etc. And of course, we would agree with all of that. It would be greatly beneficial temporarily. But it's not going to change the overall direction of our nation because the problem is not political in nature, but rather it is a spiritual problem. But moral, unbelieving people, and even many professed Christians, have no understanding that the problem is spiritual in nature and will never be resolved politically. They don't understand we got here because men have rejected the knowledge of God and exchanged the truth about God for a lie and and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And so God has given them over to a debased mind and, and it's a downward spiral to eternal judgment. It's no wonder then that we see anti-God, anti-church, anti-Christian sentiments increasing across the country. And hostility toward the church in the United States is on the rise. I read the Family Research Council's report on the increase in hostility against churches that just came out. And it states that there was a total of 420 documented acts of hostility that targeted 397 individual churches between January 2018 and September 2022 across 45 U.S. states and Washington, D.C., most of the incidences, or most of the instances covered in this report are vandalisms. The report identified 342 occurrences of vandalism, including the destruction of property, the defacement of property, ransacking and theft, 58 arson attacks or attempts, 12 gun-related incidents, 11 bomb threats, and 19 other incidences, assault, threats, interruption of worship services, etc. 20 incidents fell into more than one category, the most common combination being vandalism and arson. California had the most incidents with 51, Texas had 33, New York 31, and Florida 23. In 2018, there were 50 incidences of hostility against churches. 2019, there were 83. In 2020, there were 54. They attribute the decline to the COVID restrictions. In 2021, there were 96 And between January and September 2022, there were 137. Just a few examples close to home. Journey Church of Sonora, Sonora, California, March 19, 2022, the church building was completely destroyed in an arson attack. Sierra Foothills Community Church, Oakdale, California, June 2022, the church experienced multiple incidences of someone throwing rocks through the windows, and police believe the suspect was targeting churches. Three churches in Eureka were defaced with graffiti, one with hateful messages in September of this year. 
And then Los Molinas United Methodist Church in Los Molinas, California, on August 25th, 2018, someone attempted to commit arson by igniting a propane tank behind the church. So those are just a few that are, that are close to home. And the report stated that criminal acts of vandalism and destruction of church property are symptomatic of a collapse in societal reverence and respect for houses of worship and religion, but I don't think that's going far enough. It's much more than that. I believe it's safe to say it is symptomatic of a society that is on the verge of collapse. And I believe as our nation moves further and further away from our Judeo-Christian morals and values, and there is less and less restraint of evil by government, hostility and violence against churches and Christians are only going to increase. Furthermore, The government itself is going to come after pastors and churches who are standing on the truth of God's word and who are unwavering in their commitment to proclaim the gospel and to call sin, sin. And so it probably will not be long before proclaiming that homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, etc. is sin. It won't be long before that's going to be considered hate speech and be punishable by fine, imprisonment, or both. The phony Respect for Marriage Act, which is anything but, uh, which was recently passed and signed into law, will perhaps be used in this way. I mean, that's that's a fear uh, that uh, constitutionalists have. That remains to be seen. But this kind of thing is coming. It'll probably start in some place like New York or California or perhaps uh, one of the other left coast states. So as Christians, we must prepare ourselves for the increasing hostility, violence, and persecution that's coming, because it's coming. I'm not saying it's coming this year. I'm just saying it's coming. We can see it. We must also prepare ourselves to contend for the faith. I mean, to stand against false teaching. And this has always been something that Christians are called to do. We're we're always supposed to contend for the faith, but this is going to become even more important as the days get darker. You know, while Satan has always come against the church from the outside in the form of opposition and persecution, the most dangerous attacks upon the church have always been from within. Or from within arise the false teachers the peddlers of error who masquerade as teachers of truth. I mean, Peter said in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. One man said, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. His troops do not make a fallout frontal assault, or full-out frontal assault, but work as agents sneaking into the opposing army. And that's exactly right. That's what the scriptures tell us. You know, examples of, of the perversions of, of God's word being accepted in churches are 
you know, of course, the word of faith, or the prosperity gospel, signs and wonders, or the, the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation led by people like Bill Johnson and Bethel Church here in Reading. And that list in the, in the hyper-charismatic realm can, can go on and on. And then there is the social justice movement, critical race theory, intersectionality. Are, are, these are three perversions that are being widely accepted in the church today. The LGBTQ lifestyle and agenda are being accepted. Women as elders and pastors is becoming more and more accepted. Theistic evolution uh, uh, is, is now coming in instead of believing a literal six-day creation. Also, uh, there are many who are accepting that Genesis 1 through 11 is not literal history, but rather mythology. But if Genesis 1 through 11 is not literal historical truth, then none of the Bible can be trusted. None of it. If those first 11 chapters aren't true, none of it's true. It stands and falls together. Well, how can people be so easily deceived and caught up in false teaching? Well, let me give you a couple reasons. First of all, because there are many tares among the wheat. There are many unbelievers in the church who have no ability to discern truth from error. And secondly, many professed believers today are biblically illiterate. Never has there been a time, never has there been a time in, in the modern church when so many Bibles, commentaries, historical and theological books and papers have been available to people, yet biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. And so it's little wonder that more and more professed evangelical believers do not believe many critical Bible doctrines. In fact, many of the basic tenets of the faith. A 2022 survey done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research revealed just some shocking results. Let me give you some of the key findings. And the, the survey was done through a series of statements. A statement was made, and then you were asked if you agreed, somewhat agreed, or, or didn't agree. So the first, actually it wasn't statement number one, but the first I'll give you. The first statement was, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% of evangelicals agree. 48%. Next statement, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God, so this has to do with original sin. 65% of evangelicals agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals agree. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agree. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% of evangelicals agree. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 38% of evangelicals agree. Gender identity is a matter of choice. 37% of evangelicals agree. 
The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 28% of evangelicals agree. I mean, what we learn from this is that professed evangelicals are increasingly rejecting essential biblical doctrines, including the deity and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, as well as the inspiration and authority of the Bible, and they're embracing a secular worldview in which, in, in the areas of homosexuality and gender identity. I mean, how can this be? Well, it's because God's word is no longer seen as the standard of truth that we must live by. And so no wonder there's, there's so much chaos, confusion, and, and false teaching in the church. I mean, no wonder there are so many problems in churches across the United States. A good percentage of, of the people that attend don't even believe the Bible. But the fact is, God's word is truth. It is the standard of absolute truth. It is the final authority for faith and practice. Now, you may disagree with the Bible all you want, but it's still right and you're still wrong. Right? I love what Conrad Mbewe said. He's considered the Charles Spurgeon of Africa. This is what Conrad and Bayway said. In the church of Jesus Christ, his word is final. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter whether you like it. Jesus Christ is the final authority. Jesus Christ is the final authority, and he is to be obeyed. You see, when you reject the plumb line of God's absolute truth, then anything goes. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And this is exactly what the enemy of our souls seeks to do. Pervert the truth within the church to destroy the church and to prevent it from bringing truth and light to a deceived and dark world. I mean, Satan wants nothing more than for the church to spread a damning perversion of the truth that will do nothing more than make people religious as they journey toward an eternal hell. And so as Christians, we must prepare ourselves for the increasing hostility and persecution that's coming and prepare ourselves to contend for the faith to stand against the ever-increasing onslaught of false teaching. And it's only going to get worse. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then he goes on in the next few verses to list the attitudes and actions that would characterize those within the church in the last days. And you could summarize it really by saying, men will be lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. And then down in verses 12 and 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said this, he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's only going to get worse. 
And there's coming a time in the not-too-distant future when professed Christians will not be able to, to maintain a neutral position. In other words, you will no longer be able to remain silent about your faith. You will have to take a stand one way or the other. And you will either deny the Lord, or you will take a stand for the truth of his word and for the gospel and suffer the consequences. But following Jesus Christ presupposes a willingness to endure such hardships. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Of course, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he wanted them to know that although the gospel brings peace with God, it also may result in conflict, sometimes serious conflict. It can result in strained family relationships. It can result in, in uh, persecution and even martyrdom. And yet despite this, Jesus was demanding from them total commitment, even to the point of physical death. But that's what taking up your cross means. It's full and total commitment and surrender to Christ no matter what the cost. And this call to, to full surrender was to be part and parcel of the message the disciples were to proclaim to others. Because every Christian is called to a life or death devotion to Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's basic Christianity. Christianity 101. Take up your cross, follow him. You see, Jesus doesn't want anyone to be deluded into thinking that he calls believers to a life that is devoid of all conflict. I mean, as Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, what? Suffer for his sake. Speaking about suffering to suffering believers Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called. He's saying, look, you've been called to suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I mean, believers in the rest of the world have experienced suffering and persecution since the beginning of the church. I mean, we, however, in the, in the gracious providence of God, live in a country where we've enjoyed untold blessings, one of which is the freedom to worship without governmental interference, without being persecuted, but that's going to change. 
And when it does, there's going to be a demarcation, a separation of the true from the false. When persecution comes, and it starts truly costing people to follow Christ and and to speak the truth, nominal false believers, they're not going to stick around. Because they're not going to risk anything, much less everything, on something that they don't truly believe. And so we'll see those churches that are holding fast to the truth and contending for the faith perhaps get much smaller. And the churches who proclaim a watered-down, compromised message that offends absolutely no one, you know, they preach a broad road that they've yielded to the demands of the culture and, and their message appeals to the flesh, they'll continue to grow and grow as their ranks are filled with the religious and the, the spiritual, but the unsaved. You might be thinking, man, that's, that's a very pessimistic outlook on the new year. You know, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, speaks of the men of Issachar who came to David at Ziklag. And it says of them that they were men who were understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And by the same token, loved ones, it is important that we are understanding of the times in which we live. And so we know what to do. I don't believe what I've said is, is pessimistic at all, but rather it's realistic. It's realistic based on on the Word of God, a biblical view of things and how things are going and knowing where they're headed. We need to be aware of what's going on around us and, and coming toward us so that, you know, barring a massive revival, we can prepare ourselves spiritually so that we do not faint in the day of adversity. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we begin by remembering some very important biblical truths. And, you know, we could have a list of hundreds, but let me just give you five. We begin by remembering some important biblical truths. Number one, we begin by remembering the faithfulness of God. You know, we, I think of my grandchildren. It's like, well, what, what's it going to be for them? And then... You know, I'm reminded, well, God has been faithful to me. He's been faithful in the past to all of his people. And the same God who's been faithful in the past to all of his people is going to continue to be faithful in the future, even to my grandkids and yours. Because God is faithful. And it means trustworthy, true, reliable, credible, sure, certain, indubitable. I mean, God is to be trusted. He is reliable concerning all that he has said. The faithfulness of God is is one of the great themes of Scripture. In Exodus 34, verse 6, as God was revealing himself to Moses, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The psalmist said in Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The writer of Lamentations declared, Great is your faithfulness. And then in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish, establish you and guard you against the evil one. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Jesus identified himself to the church at Laodicea as the faithful and true witness. I mean, Jesus' very name is faithful. You say, how do we know? Revelation 19.11 tells us that the Lord is called faithful and true. Our God is faithful. He is faithful in every circumstance. He is always faithful. God never lies in making a promise and never begins a work without carrying it through to completion. God's faithfulness is, is the undergirding of our faith. And what comfort and assurance that is. I mean, our hope and trust are, are placed in the God who is absolutely and, and utterly faithfulness. And his faithfulness stands in monumental contrast to our faithlessness. I mean, one of the things we learned through the various experiences of, of life is that though we may be unfaithful, God is never unfaithful. I mean, Paul writing to Timothy said in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I mean, we can always trust God. We can always depend upon him to do what he has promised to do. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to, to be, become overburdened. We don't want to be fearful because we can trust in a faithful God. And as this new year begins, it is important to remind ourselves again and again of the faithfulness of God and of all that he has done and of all that he promises to do because it strengthens our faith, it draws us closer to him, and it strengthens and encourages us for the future. So first of all, we need to remember that God is faithful. Secondly, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is building his church. Jesus said to Peter in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My understanding is that the gates of hell or the gates of Hades is a Jewish phrase which refers to death. So what Jesus is saying then is that even death, which is Satan's most powerful weapon, is powerless to stop the church. And this, of course, doesn't mean that Christians will not be oppressed or persecuted or killed. But even if that happens, that's the worst the enemy and the world can do to us. But though they may kill the body, they cannot kill the soul, which, was, which is safely hidden with God in Christ. I mean, for the believer, death means being immediately ushered into the presence of our Lord. But the point is that Jesus has declared that death has no power to hold the church captive or to stop the church. I mean, yes, Satan has the power of death. And he will always use that power to try and destroy the church of Christ. And all we have to do is examine the history of the church over the past 20 centuries, and we'll see how the gates of hell have often sought, through one means or another, to utterly destroy the church and hinder its life-giving message to fallen humanity. And there may, there, there may, and there may be times when uh, it seems to be making progress against the church. But it will never ultimately prevail. J.C. Ryle wrote, For the preserving of the true church, the laws of nature have oftentimes been suspended. 
For the good of that church, all the providential dealings of God in this world are ordered and arranged. For the elect's sake, wars are brought to an end and peace is given to a nation. Statesmen, rulers, emperors, kings, presidents, heads of governments have their schemes and plans and think of them of of vast importance. But there is another work going on of infinitely greater moment for which they are only the axes and saws in God's hands. That work is the erection of, of Christ's spiritual temple, the gathering in of living stones into the one church. Generation after generation of believers will experience physical death, but the Lord Jesus will continue to build the church, filling the ranks with all those that the Father has given to him, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, can there be any greater basis for confidence in the building of Christ's church on earth than the fact that he himself, the, the almighty Son of God, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, declares, I will build my church? And we have this promise from Jesus that his church will prevail. And if he promises that the greatest opposition the church could face, even the very gates of hell itself, will not prevail against the church, then we can be sure that that neither can any other opposition from this world, governmental or otherwise. We need to remember that God is faithful, and we need to remember that Christ is building the church. And then thirdly, we need to remember that Jesus warned us to expect tribulation. Turn to John 16.33. John 16.33. In John 16.33, as Jesus is bringing his upper room discourse to an end, he concludes with a warning and a wonderful promise. Look at the verse. John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He said, in me you may have peace. And this peace is that, that inward tranquility of soul that only God can give. It's a, it's a quiet, settled confidence within, regardless of, of circumstances, people, or things. It enables the believer to experience supernatural peace in the midst of of the greatest troubles and and fears, but it's only found in Christ. It's in him, through a personal relationship with him. But this peace the believer finds in Christ doesn't mean the absence of trials on the outside. It does not mean exemption from conflicts and trials and trouble and, and tribulation, quite the opposite. In Christ, the disciples would have peace, but as believers, we have a dual existence, if you will. We live in two worlds simultaneously. We live in Christ, but we also live in the world. And Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. In me, you may have peace, but in the world, you will have tribulation. The world system under the control of Satan, the enemy of God and his people, opposed Jesus' message and ministry, and it opposes all those who follow him as well. In the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. There's no escape. 
There would be troubles, trials, difficulties to a greater or lesser extent, you know, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And we live in a hostile world. There's indwelling sin. There is Satan. And the world will will turn against us, persecute us. The world may kill us. And being followers of Christ meant the disciples, and by extension, all followers of Jesus would have tribulation. Their lives in this world would not be easy. They would have trouble, but Jesus says, if you look at the last part of verse 33, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. And this was an amazing statement from a man about to be arrested, forsaken, rejected, mocked, tortured, and executed. Judas, the religious leaders, Pilate, the crowd, the soldiers, or even death in the grave couldn't overcome him. Instead, Jesus could truly say, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the world, conquering sin, death, and Satan. One man wrote, he overcame the world in three areas, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. He overcame it in life because in spite of abundant griefs and temptations, he pursued the course God had set before him without deviation, sin, or error. He said of Satan, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. He overcame the world in death because his death was the price of sin and thus broke sin hold, sin's hold upon us. He overcame the world in his resurrection because by his resurrection he began his return to the throne of heaven from which he now rules the church and from which he will one day come again to put down all authority and power. Jesus won the victory over the system. He has overcome the world as the strong man who came and plundered Satan's kingdom. Jesus is the victor. And Jesus wanted the disciples to remember this fact and to rejoice in his victory. So he says, take heart. It means be of courage or be courageous because by his death he has made the world's opposition pointless. And the decisive battle has been waged and won. He has overcome. And loved ones, reality is we'll have a lot of difficulties in this life. And when we think of the power of suffering and sin in this world, it It can be overwhelming to us. But our attitude should be one of cheer and encouragement. And as Jesus says, we should take heart or or be of good cheer because absolutely nothing the world can throw at us can ultimately defeat those who belong to Christ because he's overcome the world. And in him, we participate in his victory. So we can rest in the strong assurance that Jesus Christ has conquered on our behalf. Yes, we're going to face tribulations in this world. That's a promise from Jesus. But God has given us the resources to face it. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I mean, these words were spoken within the shadow of the cross. They were spoken on the verge of what appeared to be a total defeat. But they were true then, and if they were true then, it's even more true now. We may be hated, pursued, persecuted, falsely condemned, tortured, and even martyred, but in Him, in Christ, we can have peace 
that peace that surpasses all understanding, which the Bible says will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus overcame the world at the cross at Calvary, and so in spite of of the tribulations, we can rest assured that we're on the winning side, right? I mean, we've read the book. We know who wins, right? Amen. (laughs) So in Christ, regardless of what we face in life, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And so we can say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Number four, we need to remember that God has given us everything we need to live the Christian life. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where he writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And Peter is emphasizing what we have as God's people. And he wants us to know the the spiritual resources we have through knowing Christ and and trusting in his all-sufficient promises. And he said in verse 3 that God's divine power has granted to us, that means all believers, all believers have all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know, none of us, if we looked at our lives, would would probably assume that we have everything necessary to life and godliness because we stumble and and fumble around so much. But here it is in God's holy word. And everything we need, everything we require, all that is necessary is there for us. All things, and that is all-inclusive. You cannot add to it. All things, everything, every kind of thing, the totality of things that pertain to life and godliness have been given to us by God's divine power permanently, irrevocably. We have all things that pertain, first of all, to life. And this obviously speaks of the new spiritual life the believer has in Christ that begins at the point of trusting Him and continues throughout eternity. And so we have everything that pertains to the new life we've received in Christ and and everything related to living and sustaining that life in the world. As Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything we need. Everything we need to live out the Christian life on earth to the glory of God from our initial salvation to our final glorification has been given to us in Jesus Christ. We've been given everything that pertains to life, and he says godliness. And you and I and every true believer in Christ have every spiritual resource we need to sustain and grow in the eternal life that is in us and to manifest that life in godly living. All we need is there. It's never a question of lacking something we need. All we need is available to us in Christ. Now, we may not be aware of God's provision for us in Christ and and all the resources that we have in Him. So we need to learn, don't we? We need to learn and we need to grow. We need to read and meditate upon the Word of God because that's where we learn about all of these resources that are ours in Him. And when we need to draw upon the resources we have in Christ, we go to Him in prayer, we ask Him for what we need, and we ask Him to do what He has said to fulfill His promises, and He will. I mean, He knows what we have need of, and He has promised to provide all of our needs, not all of our greeds, but He has promised to provide all of our needs. 
And God has granted to us everything we need to sustain life and live out the Christian life on earth and to manifest that life in godly living. He's given us unlimited resources in Christ, precious and and very great promises in his word. But we have to use them. By the grace and strength that he supplies, we must be diligent in putting forth the effort to drop on the resources he's given us, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to demonstrate that growth by the way that we live. And so no matter what comes our way, no matter how difficult things may become, we need to remember that God has given to us everything we need to live the Christian life in this world. And then fifthly and finally, we need to remember that God is sovereign and in control. And don't you love that? That God is sovereign and in control? That's good news. <laughs> because as we look around at all that's going on in the world, our nation, and in the visible church, it's quite obvious that we're living in dark, desperate, perilous times. I mean, sin and evil of the worst kind, violence, immorality, lewdness, and corruption run rampant as unbridled sin expresses itself. I mean, within the church, the love of many has grown cold. As Paul warned Timothy, I mentioned it earlier, men are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. They they only have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And the future is is full of uncertainties about health, jobs, finances, housing, retirement. So as we begin 2023, we're all facing some uncertainties. But all of these things should not cause us to panic. Instead, as Christians, we must trust in the providence of God. In other words, trust in the fact that in the mysterious purposes of God, these evil and uncertain times in which we live haven't taken him by surprise. You know, that God is in control and that he's working out everything according to his plan. As one man said, the believer's comfort is to know that his heavenly father so holds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom that nothing can come upon him unless God determines it. That's absolutely right. That doesn't mean we're going to like everything that happens. But it does mean that we're not at the mercy of, of random impersonal forces. We're not living life trapped or or caged by a blind, cold, merciless fate destined to die and to go to an unknown eternal destination. I mean, no, as Christians, we we can say with absolute certainty, we are in the hands of our Heavenly Father. And He is the one who says to us at this moment, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. You know, come to me with all of your burdens and and all of your fears and all of your panics and and all of your anxieties and all of your heartaches and and all of your disappointments. I I want you to to come to me and take my yoke upon you and, and live underneath my authority. Live underneath my hand because my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your weary souls. I mean, isn't that a message for us today? I mean, we know that whatever comes our way, God is working it for good. I mean, that's Romans 8.28, right? 
Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, Paul's saying there that we can know and be comforted in the knowledge that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And of course, the good that Paul speaks of there primarily refers to our being conformed to the likeness of Christ, which will ultimately be completed in our glorification. But the point is that our infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God promises to make everything beneficial to his people. And not just the nice things and the good things, but horrible things like tribulation and distress and peril and slaughter. One man wrote, the confidence that our sovereign God governs for our good, all the pain and all the pleasure that we will ever experience is an absolutely incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in our lives. No promise in all the world surpasses the height and breadth and width of Romans 8.28. It brings stability and depth and freedom to our lives. I mean, how true that is. And what a great blessing and what a great comfort it is to know that God takes everything that happens in your life and mine because we're his. And he weaves it all together to produce something that is truly good. Not, not superficially good, but, but really good. It may not seem that way now. It may not seem that way when it's happening because at any given time we see such a, a very limited portion of the, of the whole picture. You know, but God is, he, he's the only one who can see all of the pieces of the puzzle and, and he knows exactly what to do, when to do it, and how it should be done. Sometimes it's painful. Often it takes time. It certainly doesn't always come out the way we expect, but we have God's promise that he will work all things together for the good. Even those things which men mean as the severest kind of evil, God works together for the purest, truest good. And that's where God is taking it. And so the hope of the believer is not that we will escape difficulty, distress, persecution, sorrow, suffering, tragedy, and grief, but that in these things, as well as in all others, our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father is, is working to produce our ultimate good and our eternal glory, and absolutely nothing, nothing can change that. And that is why Paul said in Romans 8.39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the doctrine of security, isn't it? And so in 2023 in this new year, and, and in every year. It doesn't matter what, what happens in the world around us. It doesn't matter what happens on a global basis. It doesn't matter what happens on a national level. It doesn't really uh, matter what happens on a personal level. It doesn't matter what intersects with our, our lives. Because in the end, we belong to Him. And we have been predestined to be glorified. As Paul wrote in, in Romans 8, 29 and, and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be, uh, the, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Or you could say it like this, the way Paul said it in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, or I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is the plan of God. And that is where we are going. And everything that happens in my life and yours works toward that end. That doesn't mean that we can live any way we want with no responsibility. No, no. Now we have a responsibility before God to live our lives in a certain way according to his word. And we will be blessed if we do and the Lord will lovingly discipline us if we don't. But even our Father's discipline has the effect of impacting our lives eternally for good. But it does mean that nothing can come into our lives that God doesn't work together for our good. And he is present in all the circumstances of our lives. Nothing ever comes into your life or mine that surprises him. In fact, nothing can come into our lives that is, that is not first of all passed through the filter of his good and perfect will. This was God's people. We can entrust our lives to his loving care and be fully confident in him because he's faithful, right? He is faithful. And the grace and strength and courage we need in the trials of life are available to us from the Lord if we will put our, our trust in him. As we enter this year, we all have so very, very much to be thankful for, and we have much to be encouraged about. As I said earlier, I'm very grateful this morning for what God is doing in his people, his church, and in the world to bring about his plan and purpose. But we have to keep our focus upon Christ. We have to keep our focus upon Christ and the truth and and the promises of his word. And then we need to remember uh, these very important biblical truths that God is faithful, that Christ is building his church, that we can expect tribulation, but God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and finally that God is sovereign and that he is working all things for our good. And if we don't remember these things, it's very easy to get so caught up in just the madness around us that we lose the biblical and eternal perspective which give us the, the strength and stability we need to live in the midst of a pagan culture and to confront it head on with the glorious truth of the gospel, which is man's only hope. That's, our, that's man's only hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have every reason this morning to be greatly encouraged. We have every reason to rejoice and to exult in God and in Christ because no matter what is happening in the world, as one man said, God is still sovereign, Christ is still reigning, the Spirit is still interceding, the church is still essential, Satan is still deceiving, the gospel is still saving, and the glory is still coming. Amen. Amen to that. And so as we begin this new year, let me encourage you, to seek God diligently and to live for Christ passionately and to share the gospel fervently and to pray consistently 
I'm praying that God will bring revival to our lives, to this church, to the church, and to our nation, and to the farthest corners of the globe in 2023. I mean, may it be so. Amen. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, formerly Calvary Chapel Reading, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set free.